so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Strange, who's the author of a recent book entitled Making Faith Magnetic, Five Hidden Themes Our Culture Can't Stop Talking About and How to Connect Them to Christ. Today, we talk about evangelism and apologetics in contemporary culture. Dan is the director of Crosslands Forum, a center for cultural engagement and missional innovation. He's a contributing editor for Thamelios Journal and is a member of Hope Community Church in the UK. He's also the vice president of Southgate Fellowship, and he's the author of the recent book, Plugged In, and also Making Faith Magnetic, both published by The Good Book Company. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, uh, you've written and talked a lot about cultural engagement, including the nature of evangelism and apologetics. So what started you kind of out on this path, and what led you specifically to write this new book, Making Faith Magnetic? Well, great, Jason, to be with you. Uh, I think, um, well, really, it's my background. So my dad originally comes from uh, South America, a country called Guyana, right at the top. He came from a Hindu background. And so when I got converted, I was very interested in other religions. So that led me on to go to university, do a doctorate in what happens to people who never hear the gospel. I've always been interested in other religions. And then I think over time, that's then gradually morphed into thinking about culture in general, still interested in the other religions, but then especially what I suppose religion looks like in a in a post-Christendom, post-secular context. So it's a bit of biography there. And then my formal kind of academic training, which then led me into seminary to teach classes on culture and apologetics and worldview. And I know this is your second book with Good Book. You wrote the first one called Plugged In. What was that book about in general? Yeah, so that book was a, um, a rationale for why we have to engage with culture. It's inevitable. We want to do it for the glory of God, our evangelism and apologetics, our discipleship. And then set up a, a framework after doing a kind of a biblical theology of culture, then saying, how do we engage? And that's where the big idea in that book is this idea of subversive fulfillment, that the gospel both confronts and connects with culture at the same time. 
So really that subversive fulfillment idea. And then it, it also gives a framework for how we might engage any kind of cultural artifact. So just as Paul wanders around the objects of worship in the Areopagus in Acts 17. So how do we uh, wander around the objects of worship that our friends and family are involved with who don't know Christ? And then how, how do we keep ourselves from idols? So that book laid out the framework. And I think then this Making Faith Magnetic book, the new one, is putting a bit more detail to that. It's giving more of a framework, more of a scaffold for what that might look like in terms of our engagement with, with culture. Yeah, that's one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that it's very practical. I was telling you right before we jumped on the podcast that I've recommended it a lot, especially to undergraduate students who are studying worldview and cultural and apologetics and uh, studying theology and ethics even, is how do we connect some of these intellectual concepts to our everyday evangelism and apologetics and relationships uh, with our non-Christian family and friends and colleagues? You write early on in the book that one of your heroes in the faith and that you kind of base this book on in many ways is the uh, famed missiologist J.H. Bobink. And I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with his uncle, the Dutch Reformed theologian and ethicist Herman Bobink. So who was J.H. Bobink? Uh, can you give us a little bit of a brief introduction to who he is and some of his major works? Yeah, so J.H. Um, Johannes Herman, he was living in the first half of the 20th century. He was a pastor in the Netherlands, and then he was a missionary in Indonesia, then called Java. He then came back to um, the Netherlands and... Uh, had the chair of missiology at the Free University of Amsterdam, and then he died around in the mid-60s. I think if you if you were in a, a reformed seminary, even in the States or in the UK, in the uh, 60s or 70s, his book, An Introduction to the Science of Missions, was the standard textbook. So I was interested, I was on a call with Tim Keller last week, and Keller said that that was the missiology book at Gordon-Conwell. Um, so that that book was well known. And then increasingly over the last few years, some more of his work's been translated from the Dutch into the English. And so we're starting to get more of the his his writing. And he's a very um he it's not kind of scholastic writing. He's quite a mystical kind of uh writer, really l- lovely, um, lovely prose, uh, very influenced, I think, by then what would have been the kind of the new discipline of psychology. So there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of psychological language and also the kind of in- religious traditions he was engaging with in Indonesia. There's quite a mystical kind of turn in his writing as well. So I, I find him lovely to read. And the great thing about him, he really does encapsulate what John Stott talks about in terms of double listening. He's firmly reformed the brilliant kind of biblical exegesis in terms of human beings, what human beings are, coming out of uh, Romans 1 and other passages, but then a real love and knowledge of the religious other. And he just also seems pastorally just a a loving person who wanted to tell people about the Lord Jesus, but in a way that really connected with where they're at. So I've been very drawn to him over the years when I first discovered him when I was doing undergraduate study. Yeah, and that's one of the things. It's it's fascinating because I wasn't familiar with him kind of growing up I was vaguely familiar with him, especially as of late, um, but I didn't grow up in the church. And so I just didn't know a lot of these names, especially some of the Dutch reformers that have been so influential in my life now. I just didn't know about them early on. One of the things that you do early in the book is that you write about there's these two instinctive human behaviors uh, that really help to set up some of the influence of Bob Inc. and his five magnetic points that we'll talk about here in a minute. But these two instinctive behaviors that you notice is the notion of suppressing truth and also substituting God. 
uh, specifically for created things in our contemporary culture. So how do you see those two behaviors really affecting the stories that we tell ourselves today? And how does this kind of reveal or show us the cogency of the Christian worldview? Yeah. So I think in that Romans 1 passage, before the suppression and substitution, there's the, and I, I deal with this a little bit and plugged in and re, go over it in Making Faith Magnetic. It's the idea that already in creation, God has revealed things about himself. Culture, creation is not a blank slate. It already has meaning in it. Now in Romans 1, it's the wrath of God is being revealed. So there's the wrath of God being revealed. It's like God's warning sign to humanity. Something has gone wrong, seen in all kinds of things, that we live under curse, that we're going to die, that my hair's receding every year, all the disappointments and frustrations. Elsewhere, of course, we see the blessing of God, the rain that falls on the just and the unjust. So creation already has meaning built into it. And of course, in Romans 1, it also says that God has revealed his his invisible qualities, his divine power and uh, eternal power and divine nature. And so that's kind of hardwired into us. And even though we suppress the truth and substitute it, what Making Faith Magnetic is arguing is that uh, the anthropology that comes out is still a religious being who still has to depend upon something and be accountable to something. So the suppression is never total. We're still, we don't lose our image of godness, even though we it's distorted or marred, almost sometimes beyond recognition. And even though we substitute for other things, we're still worshipping creatures. So there's a framework about what it means to be human. I mean, Bavink has this great line that we can't, you know, we can't lose our humanity. We may be, we're both majestic and woeful at the same time. And that's what this idea of the magnetic points are, are about. It's this idea that there are these itches that we have to scratch and they're universal. They they come in infinite number of different cultural variations and the dynamic between them. But they're these five uh, magnetic points that we're drawn to. And that's what the book kind of expounds. So everyone has a religious consciousness and that religious consciousness is what we've done with God. We've suppressed the truth. We've substituted it for other things, but it's never eradicated. It's the idea that idolatry is always parasitic on something good. And so we can never completely eradicate that, uh, what Calvin calls the sense of of the divine. Yeah. So what are the five points from Bob Vink? I mean, obviously he's writing them in a more specifically world religious context, but what are these five points uh, that he illuminates? And then also how does that then apply to some of the more contemporary cultural issues that we face today? Yeah. So if, if you think of everyone has one religious consciousness and the five magnetic points, it will be a mistake to compartmentalize them, but you have to take them in some kind of order. I mean, what I've done in the book is really given them my own titles, updated them for contemporary language, and also then given a load of examples that Bavink wouldn't have come across, I suppose, because he was in a different culture. So the five points are totality. Is there a way to connect? It's this idea that there is, we want a sense of belonging to something or someone. We want to be part of something bigger. This idea that we both think that we're significant as human beings and insignificant at the same time. We're nothings, but sometimes when we connect with something bigger, we think that we're connected with something. So in the book, I describe that in all kinds of ways. It can be Comic Con, it could be an LGBT rally, it could be looking for your family tree, it could be social media. It's that idea of connection. 
So totality, is there a way to connect? Norm, is there a way to live? The idea that we set up norms for ourselves, it doesn't necessarily have to be Christian norms. Often it is parasitic on Christian norms, but any kind of idea that there's a standard that a culture has to stick to or or, uh, rules that can't be transgressed. Um, And again, in the book, even countercultural things, I use the example of um, uh, people who would identify themselves as Gothic, uh, Goths in that way, they, they still have rules for their own subculture. And I suppose cancel culture is a little bit about that. It, it, it's rules that have been broken. So we all have a, no, there's a norm nature to our human beingness. Uh, the third one is a deliverance. Is there a way out? Everyone thinks there's something wrong with the world. The world isn't as it should be. It's a looking back to maybe a golden age or looking forward to what the world could be like. The problem is we all disagree on what we think the problem is, let alone what deliverance might might happen as as a result or how we might get deliverance. But we always ask the question of deliverance. Even, and again, sometimes you have to be quite subtle or there's a kind of a, a variation of it. Sometimes we seek deliverance from thinking about deliverance. So one of the examples in the book is a friend of mine who is a pastor. He's discipling two guys in his church who are addicted to the game Clash of Clans on their phone just because they can't face life. Their deliverance is actually in escapism. The fourth magnetic point is destiny. Is there a way we control? I mean, this is a classic philosophical issue. It's the relationship between fate and freedom. Are we free or are we just kind of puppets? Are we cogs in a bigger machine? Do we have freedom at all or is it just fatalism? And in the book, I deal with all kinds of superstitions that that human beings have, but not just superstitions. It can be seen in, you know, the idea that, are my genes, um, when I do a kind of a test to see where I came from, does that determine who I am or do I have freedom? And of course, one of the um, one of the tensions that I think, especially in young people today, is that they're, they're told that they can be anything that they want to be and then they realise they can't. And it's a massive crisis and they people feel trapped is where the, the kind of the victimhood kind of dynamic happens. So destiny. Now, in Bavink's time, the fifth magnetic point, which I suppose is the super magnetic point, is, is there a way beyond? He calls it the higher power. And of course, for him, it was the question of God. It's where all the other mag- magnetic points leads. It's, you know, who is it that connects us? Who is it that gives us the norm? What delivers us? Who is in control? And of course, in Bavink's context, I think the first magnetic point you'd meet is, do you believe in God? Now, I think the difference between Bavink's context and our context in our post-secular context is that actually this fifth magnetic point of a higher power, is there a way beyond? It is buried and needs to be excavated. It's as we talk about the other magnetic points that we come in on this question. And it's too simple to say, is there a God or not? I think in our context, there's a, another another step in there, which would be, is there an understanding of transcendence? Is this world all that there is? And then I think as the more you ask that, you come to the question, well, if there is something, is it personal or impersonal? If it's personal, what kind of personal God is it? If it's impersonal, what does that mean? So this higher power, it's where all the other points converge. So they're the five points. Totality, is there a way to connect? Norm, is there a way to live? Deliverance, is there a way out? Destiny, is there a way we control? And then a higher power, is there a way beyond? Yeah. 
And especially, that's one of the things I want to pick up on is that last one. Obviously, so you said that's where Bob Inc. kind of saw is it all coming together, focused on is there a God? And that one of the things you mentioned that I want to kind of elaborate on is especially living out our faith in a contemporary society, it can be pretty challenging in certain ways, especially in Western cultures, where there's this idea of a disenchantment. Kind of pick up on you referenced a few different times the philosopher Charles Taylor. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast uh, with a past episode with Alan Noble, who wrote "You Are Not Your Own" just not too long ago. Really helpful book. Listeners can check out that podcast episode uh, to dig in a little bit deeper. But it's almost as if the Christian faith has become this receding memory in a lot of Western cultures uh, that we increasingly live in this disenchanted age, as Charles Taylor and others have noted. So how then, I guess, does Bavink's points then apply in kind of contemporary society? Because he, well, I referenced earlier that he was writing in a predominantly, he's thinking about world religions. Obviously, they're thinking that there's something supernatural. But if we live in an age that there is a, a cutting off of a, uh, kind of the imminent frame of being able just to see what's here and there's nothing beyond this world, there's nothing supernatural, only the natural. How then does this kind of idea, this longing for transcendence kind of play itself out um, in contemporary society? Well, as as you'll know, Jason, the first thing is that in the book, it's not that I push back against Taylor, and I do think Taylor is, his analysis is very important. However, there are others, and I do mention Rodney Stark, who's at Baylor, who I put this great quote in where he's unconvinced that we are disenchanted. He says that all of the qualitative research in Europe even shows that people still believe in all kinds of things. I mean, he, you know, 56% of Americans still believe in guardian angels. Now, you know, that research is out there. So he says that Taylor, he has this great quote where he says, you know, all this shows is that no one's view is more skewed than from the faculty lounge. So he thinks that Taylor's got it wrong. Now, I think that's a little harsh on Taylor because I think his, his is a very sophisticated thesis. I do think there's a certain amount of disenchantment. Now, as a as a Reformed Protestant, Taylor seems to put a lot of blame at the Reformation there. I, I'm, I'm less convinced about that. And actually, do you know what? I think some disenchantment's a good thing. I think that the Reformation got away with a lot of superstition is good from a Christian point of view. However, and I, I think that there is exclusive humanism has had a kind of a more of an impact or has been a kind of an overarching worldview. However, I do think that people believe in all kinds of things. And I know it's a little trite, but in the book, I don't say, I would say we're not disenchanted, rather we're diff-enchanted, we're differently enchanted, certainly away from what would be called traditional world religions. But I I wonder whether that's an enlightenment concept anyway, in terms of how we'd understood religion. I mean, that's a discussion for another time. So I think it's more complicated than just saying we're disenchanted. And I think, you know, people like Jamie Smith and others who have written about Taylor talk about the secular is, is haunted. Um, in, in Smith's book, uh, How Not to Be Secular, there's a great illustration he gives of a book that was written in the UK by an atheist guy called um, Julian Barnes called Nothing to be Scared of. And the book starts like this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And I think for all of your kind of hardcore new atheists, in my context anyway, it's much more that idea that we can't quite close the door and we might believe in all kinds of things and we might show it in all kinds of different ways that are not traditionally religious. Now, for me, that sociological analysis is just um, when you look at that through the biblical lens, you say, yeah, of course, that's what Calvin's saying. That's what Augustine's saying. 
there is this sense of the divine. Now, of course, sometimes it's repressed, and I do think that's a sign sometimes of God letting a culture give a culture over. But I think I'm not willing to give up the idea that there's always a point of contact. Everybody is running to and running away from God. We know God and we don't know God. And yeah, we may have to be creative in the way that we're trying to excavate that religiosity, but it's always there. And so that gives us hope. We just need to know how how do we find that? And I think Bavink wrestles with that in his book on religious consciousness. Bavink says, look, we're entering into an age now where there is this kind of secular worldview, but he 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 doesn't give up hope. And I don't think we can give up hope because I don't think a theological anthropology enables us to say there is no point of contact. There's always a point of contact because image bearers have to, we can't help but kind of squeeze out that religiosity somewhere. Yes, it's idolatrous. Yes, it's running away from God, but it's always a a, a distortion of that revelation that we are, that we are images. So that I suppose that's how I'd answer the question. The sociology actually just confirms what I think a good, robust theological anthropology tells us. Well, and that's kind of the beauty of kind of the Reformed tradition um, is knowing that you do have this sense of the divine, that Christian truth does correspond with true reality. And so nothing that's going to be discovered contradicts that and that we are, as you said, created in God's image. We all have this sense of the divine, even if we suppress it in our unrighteousness, Romans 1, it's still there. Uh, those markings are still there. And so it is, just like you said, whether it's um, Taylor or whether it's Smith talking about the haunting that we live in a haunted age is that there is still a transcendence is that longing for transcendence. And obviously that's what Bobbing's picking up there. And those theological truths, I wouldn't want people then to say that's necessarily how we immediately communicate that to in our evangelism and apologetics. The worst thing you can say to an atheist is, Oh, you really believe in God, don't you? Or you've got faith. We, we have, I'm, I'm talking about the theological analysis now, how we communicate that and how we draw that out is really important in terms of listening, finding points of contact with gentleness and respect, you know, all the things that we we learn from scripture about the actual encounter. But that theological in, uh, analysis is very important because it gives us confidence and it shows us that there is always a way in. Um, we just need to be creative in the way that we look for it. Just as I think, again, I know I keep going on about it, just as I think Paul does at the Areopagus, you know, he wanders around the objects of worship. The unknown God is not Jesus Christ, but Paul has to start somewhere. And from there, he subverts and then he fulfills. Um, and I think that's that's got to be the framework. So where we end up with these magnetic points, where I suppose the plugged in book and the magnetic, um, Making Faith Magnetic book are joined together, is that in the second half of Making Faith Magnetic, I say, well, look, we've got these five points Jesus both subverts and fulfills every one of those points. He's the way that we connect. He is the norm. He is the one who gives deliverance. He is the one who answers the question on destiny. He is the higher power. Not in the way that we've answered the questions, but in a way that both confronts and connects with the way that we've answered the questions, hence the subversive fulfillment. Yeah, and getting back to Taylor, that's where I think some of the best critiques, while there's a lot of things that I've learned from him, and especially from his work and even uh, Smith's work and others that have been commenting and kind of building off his thesis, is that there's, I think there's a missing role of technology. As you said earlier, he kind of lays the blame of secularism at the feet of the Reformation. 
and says it's actually the Reformation that ushered all of this in. And there have been a lot of folks who have agreed with some of his conclusions, but maybe not the history of how he got there. And one of those is uh, Carl Truman, who we had on the podcast earlier this year, um, actually critiques Taylor on technological grounds, saying actually the technology, think of the printing press and how subversive it was, uh, not only to the Catholic Church, um, but to the spread of information to the masses, the democratization of information to the masses, but also even the rise, and we've talked a little bit on the podcast about the rise of fake news and misinformation from the printing press. So these aren't even just modern technological advances. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, how do you see technology and social media revealing some of these longings that we have, whether it's longings for individuality, but also identity, and at the same time for something bigger than ourselves, but at the same time, kind of this individualistic type of culture? How do you think technology and social media play into that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I certainly don't think that technology is neutral in this. I think it does play a role. And actually, it probably accentuates or magnifies those things. So, for example, of course, social media gives us the connection that we want, but of course, social media gives it on our terms, as in we can have connection with others, but it's on our terms if we want to create our own identity rather than our real identity. So it can reveal and mask identity at the same time. So there's a there's a kind of a an autonomy about it, a fakeness about it, if we if we want to do that. And again, I think that does that does tie into the the exclusive humanism, I think, in terms of it's individualistic, but it's individualistic that is also showing that we do want to be connected. I mean, one of the examples I give, and I'm so outdated now, my kids would laugh, is that, you know, I still look at Facebook. I know none of my kids or even they look at Facebook anymore. But anyway, in 2012, I think Facebook had its billionth um, user. So there was this advert and it's all about connection. It's literally as if Zuckerberg could have been reading J.H. Bavink. It is about, we need to connect. Here are the things in society that connects us. You know, he talks about chairs, basketball, a great nation. We need things to connect because the universe is dark. And again, it's that idea that we want connection, but I know that I can create my own identity that actually masks my who I really am. So, I mean, that's just one example. I mean, obviously, cancel culture is another great example as well that is exacerbated by social media. I mean, this is where Charles Taylor is very good, actually. He had an earlier essay called A Catholic Modernity, where he says something like, the problem with humanism is that humanism thought it was doing humanity a favor by getting rid of sin and total depravity. The problem is if you get away with those doctrines, you set the bar so high for humanity that when humanity can't reach it, there's nowhere to go. You have to then become coercive to try and get people to make the standard and they can't make the standard. And isn't that what cancel culture is? It's saying no strike, one strike and you're out. And so in some ways, what we need to be doing is saying, I don't mean this facetiously, the doctrine of sin is good news because it says that we're not perfect. We don't, we, you know, Jesus is both the standard and the savior as well. There's a social um, conservative social critic in the UK called Douglas Murray, who's written a book called The Madness of Crowds, which is a, a very good book. He's an atheist, doesn't, but he's not a believer. Um, and he has this little section on forgiveness. Like he doesn't know how we can where forgiveness comes from, but he says we've lost this idea that there can be restoration and, and forgiveness. And I think that's a great example of where the whole of Christian theology helps us. But you know, creation, fall, and redemption—that whole story is actually good news. 
uh, into some of these issues that we're facing at the moment because there's a moralism whether it's cancel culture or virtue signaling that is pretty terrifying the bar is set so high and sometimes i just think there's going to be no one left i mean <laughs> that's the situation isn't it that's one thing that I really I, I love this book, and that's something I've I told you right before we jumped on is that um, I, I've been recommending, especially in a lot of the undergraduate classes I've been teaching, specifically on worldview, because in the class I introduced them to five worldview concepts. So a lot of there's four questions or eight questions or what have you. I use five concepts, and a lot of these five concepts are theological, ethical, and philosophical concepts. And it always one of the questions that always kind of comes to is, well, what does this mean? And the interesting thing, and when they mean that, is they mean, what does this mean for evangelism? What does it mean for apologetics? What does it mean for engaging culture around us? And it's really funny to me because the five concepts actually kind of align with Bavink, and I didn't actually realize this. It was something that kind of just happened in some sense. But these five philosophical concepts are God, humanity, world, meaning, and morality. So the idea, is there a God or is there a higher power? kind of using Bob Inc.'s language there. What does it mean to be human? What is the world and what is the nature of reality? What is the nature of meaning and knowledge and truth? And then also what is ethics? What is morality? How are we called to live? And I found that really interesting as I was reading the book, I was like, man, this actually aligns really well. And it was a really good kind of uh, ending to our class is to say, hey, look, you can kind of take these five concepts that we've been learning about and see how they are actually these magnetic points. And then you can apply that into missions and evangelism. One of the questions I want to ask you is then, how do you think that it actually helps us to think about our faith and kind of contribute to Christian discipleship? So I think often we talk about engaging other people, but how does these five magnetic points or these five worldview concepts, the way I talk about them, how does that actually contribute to Christian discipleship within the local church? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant question, Jason. I'm glad you asked it because I think towards the end of the book, I mean, in some ways, the book has been marketed as a evangelism and apologetics book. And yes, this material was from classes that I taught at seminary on apologetics and evangelism. However, I think a, a, two years ago, a student put their hand up and said, look, this is all really great stuff, but why are we, why are we talking about it in terms of evangelism and apologetics? Surely this is about discipleship, i.e., the first thing we should be doing, not the last chapter of the book, but the first thing we should be doing is seeing how do these magnetic points apply to me? How how am I pulled away by other things that I think can connect me more than Christ? When do I think that Jesus's norm is not the norm that I should follow? I think it's restrictive. When do I look for other deliverances other than Christ's deliverance? When do I think that God is either not sovereign or God is actually has got it in for me. He's not a loving heavenly father. These are all ways that we're being pulled away. Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. And if we then apply these magnetic points to ourselves first, and we see how Christ, his work and person, the Christian worldview answers these questions, then naturally we will be evangelistic and apologetic about them. And it's this idea that we're not to think of our lives as a pie chart where we have like, oh, I'm going to go and do and now as evangelism and apologetics this this week, and then I'm going to go to church, then I'm going to go and go to class. It's that our lives are like a flow diagram. And as we fall in love with Christ more, naturally then we will be more evangelistic and apologetic. So in some ways, that chapter at the end of Making Faith Magnetic, which is about discipleship, there's a sense in which it has to come first. And then 
we will again get opportunities because we will have applied it to our own hearts. And then there's just a natural bubbling over of, hey, I, I see how you're looking for connection in all the wrong places and that's not going to be good for you. Or you're looking for a deliverance that is never going to deliver you. Or your view of God is that it's a, he's a malevolent force, but the God that I believe in is, is a loving heavenly father will naturally want to talk about Jesus. Yeah. And obviously we don't have time uh, today to get into some of the kind of application and saying, I know you have, you list out kind of four steps that you would encourage people to kind of, as they're thinking about building relationships and engaging people in conversations. And I encourage uh, listeners to go grab a copy of the book and read those. But the last question I always ask guests when we have them on the podcast is, what are some recommended resources? So obviously this has been a really thrilling conversation. There's so much that we could unpack um, here, what are some resources that you would recommend listeners to pick up outside of your book, obviously, um, who want to dig a little bit deeper into some, kind of understanding some of these cultural attitudes or these kind of magnetic points, and then how do they apply kind of in our contemporary society? So I think on Bavink, always go to the primary sources. So J.H. Bavink, the J.H. Bavink Reader, which um, is edited by John Bolt, that includes, I think, Bavink's most detailed work called Religious Consciousness. He's also got another few essays as well that are, are, are very helpful. Just to say, there's going to be a translation of a book, an earlier book by J.H. Bavink that I, I actually, I was discussing last week with James Eglinton, who's written the big book on Herman Bavink and Tim Keller. We had a little discussion. It's a book called Personality and Worldview that um, Bavink wrote when um, he was a younger, and it's very good. That's quite, I think Crossway are going to publish that next year. The other thing I'd recommend is a, is a writer called Chris Watkin, Christopher Watkin, he lectures in French philosophy in Melbourne. He's a Brit, but he's written a very good book called Thinking Through Creation, which came out by with PR in 2017. And that's looking at the patterns. It's basically a biblical social theory. It's saying, what are the patterns of Genesis? And how do we start to not just look at the Bible, but look through the Bible? He's also writing um, a big kind of Christian social theory that I'm reading a manuscript at the moment. I think Zondervan are going to publish it next year. I think he's a he will be a really important figure because he's saying, yes, you've got um, the influence of people like Foucault and others. It's all about critical theory, um, social theory. But he's saying, is there a biblical social theory? And he's trying to lay down the foundations. And he has this great tool called diagonalization, which says, you know, the world often puts up false juxtapositions. So do we, we have to choose between things like beauty or function or impersonal structures or personal relationships. And time and again, he says, look, look at Genesis 1 and 2. You don't have to choose an either or. The Bible diagonalizes. It goes straight through it and gives a different way of looking at the world. And I think that's a very practical tool. So Chris Watkin, Thinking Through Creation, the J.H. Bavink Reader, and this book coming out, um, Personality and Worldview. I'm really looking forward to uh, the Personality and Worldview volume. I heard about it not too long ago from a friend who's very much um, kind of in tune with a lot of the Dutch Reformed translations and such, and I'm really looking forward to it. Hopefully, I may even be able to use it in a Worldview class or two. Um, so I'm looking forward to being able to get a hold of that volume here pretty soon. So, uh, well, Dan, I just want to thank you. One, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for joining us today on the uh, Digital Public Square. It's been a really fun conversation. And obviously, uh, we'll link to your book and for listeners to be able to grab those books that you recommended in the show notes. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. 
As a reminder, you can connect with Dan and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you and hope you have a great week. Thank you.